Welcome, friends, back to another episode of Quest for You, my podcast to motivate you, to inspire you, to take maybe a different type of action today, one that helps you be a better person. I bring you today my second interview, my second Quest story. If you missed the first one, I published it last Friday, and I hope. To continue for a few more Fridays with interviews. Right now, I'm just interviewing friends, people that are here in the Bay Area that I know, that know me, and I have to tell you, it's a wonderful journey to sit down and record stories. And I'm quite surprised that the things that we talk about. Or things that you would think somebody knows about their friends, but we touch on some really interesting topics with everyone that I've interviewed so far. And today is no exception. Pippin Aurora is an author. He writes, and you can find his books on Amazon. I will link to his page on Amazon via my show notes. I'm fascinated with Pippin because we both share the immigrant story. Pippin came long time ago from India to the United States. I came from Germany, and with that immigrant story, there are a lot of common themes. That if you also came to this country from another place of this world, probably can relate to the sense of loss. And Pippin talks about this of leaving something behind, giving it up, and coming here and starting over. The sense of belonging, the question, who am I? Where do I belong? What is my life? Pippin asked himself this question, and I have many times myself. And then, in a way, I have to say I look up to him as a person that successfully is able to pursue his passion, which is writing. Pippin has made the journey. From corporate America, slowly transitioning into the profession that truly makes him happy, which is writing. And to some degree, I am on a similar journey. I'm still discovering what it really is that I want to do with my life, but I know it. Quest for you is part of this journey. Whether it's podcasting, speaking, coaching—I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of all three of them. I'm fascinated by Pippin's story, and I am super excited to bring it to you today. And I'm certain there are things in there that you will find motivating, helpful, maybe calming, realizing that there are people out there that have questions like you have them, that also had to go a long way to find what it is that they love and to finally pursue it, and the consequences that. Come with such a decision, which is not always a wonderful and happy ending. Wow! I pursued my passion, and here I am. Pippin talks about some of the challenges that go along with doing that. Please enjoy this interview, and I also strongly encourage you to pick up a copy of Pippin's book, Notes of a Mediocre Man. You'll find the stories in that book quite enlightening. That's how I felt, and I cannot recommend it. Enough for you to read, and maybe it's a good gift over the holidays to pick up for yourself, for a friend, somebody you like. With that, 
here's my interview with Pippin, and I can't wait to talk to you soon. Much love. I want to welcome Pippin Aurora to Quest for You interview. My first set of interviews that I'm doing that is very new to me, and I'm very excited and a little bit nervous. And I want to thank Pippin, who's my friend, who's been my friend for a long time. He came over and decided to do this. So thank you, Pippin, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Pippin, I want to start with your bio that I have here in front of me that is in your book because you are a writer. And it says, born in Delhi, India, Pippin Aurora came to the United States when he was nine. He has worked numerous part-time jobs, cashier, stock boy, waiter, salesman, and then more professionally as an economist an energy analyst and a system analyst, which there's so much there. We can go any direction, but I'm very interested about India. Tell me just whatever comes to mind. Tell me about India. I think uh, one way to begin is I realize now what happened when I came to the U.S. In India, one way to put it is I realized recently I had maybe seven layers of connections. I would go to school. It was a very fancy private school. I was probably the poorest person in my school, not just the class, but the whole school. But, the, but the, my fellow students were quite nice. And so I had that connection, of the connection of school. When I came home, I had my immediate family. That was level number two. Then I had a compound in which I lived. There were 70 of us. Some people, uh, one person had a car, a few had refrigerators, most people did not. Many did not even have a flush toilet. Uh, the sweeper, the watchman, the gardener lived in their small places in the, towards the back. And there were the servants' quarters for a few servants in the back. But it was a very mixed place. But most importantly, there were 70 people, all of whom knew me my name and who were very protective of me. So that was layer number three. I had the relatives on my mother's side, and in India, family is very important, and that was layer number four. I had all the relatives on my father's side. And again, things were not always perfect, but a lot of people, 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 and that was layer number five. Layer number six of connection was that I absolutely believed that I was a part of India. I think all of us did, that India was a poor country, but we would all grow up and do our best to make it a better place. So I absolutely, absolutely felt a part of India. And layer number seven was that above all of this, there was something called God, absolutely all over the place, who protected you, who comforted you. One of the things we often did was we performed the story of God, the Ram Leela. Ram is one of the gods, Leela means play. So the play of God, especially in the fall at one of the festivals, Diwali time, and the few weeks coming preceding it. So anyway, there they were all these seven layers again. My school at home, my immediate family, the compound in which I grew up, mother's side of family, father's side of family, country, and God. And then we came by ship. My father was in the embassy. He was assigned here for a few years. We came by ship, took a month to get here. And only in retrospect do I realize it, Almost everything disappeared. 
All that I had left was I went to school, which was now a foreign school in which I didn't have many connections or anything. And I came home and I had my immediate family. Maybe vaguely there was a larger circle of the embassy, but it was nothing like the compound I grew up in. But the other layers, my mother's side of family gone, my father's side of family gone, country gone, God gone. And so you begin from nothing and you begin from scratch and you begin all over again. And only in retrospect do I realize all those questions come up. Who am I? What am I? Am I a good person? People make fun of me. They don't make fun of me. I have no one to play with. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Only in retrospect can I even begin to ask those questions. But then going through it, it was not an easy time. Mm-hmm. And when you said on the ship, that was here to the United States? That was The ship went from Bombay, India to London, Mm-hmm. stopping on many places along the way for a day, and then from London to New York City. And my father was assigned in Washington, D.C., so, but then we, t- we just stayed in New York for one night and then took the train to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And that's where you... And that's where I grew up for uh, while my father was there. Then on the East Coast, I went to college and graduate school, and then I... Uh, Spent many decades there, and I hated Washington, D.C., so I moved to California, <laughs> which is at least a lot nicer. <laughs> it's prettier. <laughs> wow, what a what a beginning. I, I relate a lot to this story, even though my journey to the U.S. was very different. But I relate to the concept of, of loss, of leaving so much behind. This process of starting over, you... It's not just about the material things, but like I remember like my grandparents' house and all the things that were there, they all made, they gave you that sense of home. It was home. And when all that was gone, it it's not that I needed those things, but they together with the people, with the rituals, with the traditions, with the things that you did every day, like poof, you know, evaporates suddenly into air. So I have a, your book in front of me are these stories your background are they feeding your writing today i think that's inevitable and i think if there are 18 stories in this book notes of a mediocre man and if you read them you notice one thing you almost pick up immediately is there are nine stories about india half of them about india half about the u.s Mm. and the indian stories is always for whatever is going on there's a sense of people and there's a sense of uh, community of some kind. People may not be happy, but it, it's surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. All the American stories usually have an individual as the center, struggling and looking for something, whatever. Or mm-hmm. uh, So there's someone who works at a convenience store that gets robbed, someone who goes from interview to interview looking for a job. Uh, the story I read was of Mr. Takur and the bill. There was a specific reason I read that story, but we can get into that later. But I made some notes on the topics that came to mind as I read this story. There was, and some of this was very familiar to me, the bureaucracy. Um, Was in Germany, even though a different country, totally different, but very bureaucratic as well. Um, But then, you know, I definitely got the, the sense of, family that there is always like uh, maybe not so much from that story but I know from Indian tradition family is always the backbone it's the support it's the base for everything that you can go back to 
So I, it sounds to me like that was kind of the hard thing for you. But you had your family when you came. Your parents were here. But it was at the wider network, the other levels that you mentioned were gone. They were gone. That right. was the hard part. Right. Yeah. Um, I also got a little bit of a sense of loneliness from that story. Because Mr. Takor, he's kind of alone. He has properties, but he's alone. The story that Janine is talking about is the bill, which is about a story about a man in India who goes to contest his electric mm -hmm. bill. He's mm -hmm. received a large electric bill, then he goes to contest it. Right. And as you said, Janine, it's about the uh, bureaucracy, which is there in India much more even than in the U.S., but it's all over the world, and we can identify with that. But I think still there is a sense, there is a... I would say even in that story, there's a sense of even a certain kindness. The world is still benevolent. It may be, it may be inefficient. Mm -hmm. It may be mean. But you're not alone in the world in the profound sense that you sometimes feel in the West and that you sometimes feel in the U.S. Mm -hmm. One other way to put it is when I visit India, when my parents were alive, when I would visit, for example... I never began the day thinking about myself. In fact, I almost never thought about myself because there were so many people around me who were less well off. Mm -hmm. There were people, there was noise, there were markets, open fruit stalls, this and that. And you were always immediately part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. I think that's not just the United States, that's in a sense the development to the West that the idea was that the family can get too claustrophobic, people giving you orders, you have to listen to your parents, you have to listen to authority. And the idea in some ways of the West was, no, it's the individual. We want to get away from that. I want to find myself. And in finding one myself, people, you know, dig deeper into themselves, but then they become often shut off from the rest of the world. They feel they're an isolated atom. Mm -hmm. And one good example of that, just a little essay I came across 50 years ago called The Vanishing American Porch. It's a simple little point that in America, they used to build front porches. Porches were outside, so you could wave to the world, it could wave back. It was Maybe you had your individual house, but you at least had a front porch where you were half connected with the world. But now we don't build front porches anymore. Air conditioning took us inside, TV took us inside, the comforts took us inside, and now if we build anything, it's a back porch. Oh, I need my quiet. I work all day. I have the commute all day. I have enough of the world as it is all day. I need my... So that even that little symbolic connection with the world, half in, half out, it's your world, it's your porch, but you're looking out at the world is gone. Mm -hmm. So my point is in, in, in the West and in America that isolation in some ways becomes profound. It becomes complete. And it was in the, it, it, there was a good origin to it. I want to get away from claustrophobia of family, of authorities telling me what to do, of the church telling me what to do, of my priests telling me what to do. I am intelligent enough. I need to see the world with my own eyes, find the truth for myself. And that has all its benefits. Of course it does. It gives us wonderful science and progress in other ways. But the argument can be made that it takes away. It leaves you empty mm. and you feel alone and isolated. And one other quick point on this, I was just coming across a calendar a couple of years ago, you know, which has little quotes from people. And there was one quote from Mahatma Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi, and there was one quote from Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn is coming from Russia, Gandhi is coming from India, and they were making essentially the same points. Mm. It's the, the illness of the West is of the soul, of the emptiness. It has all the other things, and that's why in some ways Solzhenitsyn came to the U.S., but he went back to Russia. 
So anyway, to go back to the point of the bill, maybe uh, even in the the point I was making in the book, in those nine Indian stories, there's at least a sense of some sense of community. They may, if if there is irony, it's gentler. But in in the American stories, the sense of loss is is deeper. Mm-hmm. It's profounder. The, the sense of emptiness is is deeper, greater. So you're saying, um, if I hear you right, that does that we need community. We need, even though our family they'll have different opinions and they're going to say things and maybe try to stir our life in certain ways. But you saying that this is critical for our well-being as a human to have that support from the different levels of community around us. I think that, I mean, it, the, 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 the word that would easily come up is balance. We don't want to be have family overwhelm us <clears throat> or the church leaders or the temple leaders overwhelm us with what we should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. But what I think the, in some ways the history of the West is that if you are completely by yourself, There's something missing. There's something missing. And Gandhi, in that little calendar quote, and Solzhenitsyn, many thousand miles away from his Russia, would really saying the same thing. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I always, I, I think just by the trend that's you know with social media and people want to connect, people longing to connect with others. I think we just don't know how to do it. And I, and with the increase in technology and social media, I think. It just gets worse and worse. We we want connection, but we also don't want to give up our individuality. We don't want to take a chance. We want to connect with people online because that's safe, but we don't want to go out there and meet people. I think, you know, I see it on, on, on my meetup where you and I met that I post a dinner and 10, 12 people sign up and then, you know, five of them cancel an hour before the dinner. People, I think, are afraid to connect. I think it's a great malady of our time, sadly. Let's talk a little bit about your journey, too. Because that was the other point in your bio. From different jobs that you've had, they all sound very interesting, to then a professional career. Tell me kind of how you fell into your career? Did you study to be an economist or how did that come about? How did you pick your career? I don't think I picked anything. I I was very young. I began school in India two years younger than others. And so I graduated from high school when I was 14. And since I was an Indian, you're supposed to be practical and do practical things. And so <laughs> studying finance, accounting, economics was the practical thing to do because it was critical to get a job after you graduated and be able to support yourself, you didn't have the luxury of uh, uh, what we normally call studies in the humanities, which uh, I didn't have the luxury of that. So all of the humanities stuff I had to teach myself over the years, mm-hmm. the literature and the philosophy, and I read endlessly for years and years on my own. So yeah. my ed- education was in something very practical. Then I worked in practical companies like Westinghouse and... Uh, places like that in their finance groups. Uh, but I think what led to the writing really was I found increasingly in America, in the workplace and elsewhere, 
that I was in a culture of what I would call a culture of success, that you're inundated by success stories. Top 10 law schools, top 10 medical schools, this person makes this much money, this person makes that much money. We have newspapers, we have magazines talking about newsmakers. Mm -hmm. But by definition, it seems the people in the magazines and newspapers are the newsmakers. And your role or my role in life, I felt, was to read about them, to applaud them, to listen to their stories. But I was always the spectator and the one on the outside. And little by little, just just the sense became an overwhelming sense that you, I did, or just take the idea of the Sunday newspapers. Newspapers are going out of fashion, but in the old days, newspapers used to be 300 pages, 400 pages on Sunday. So they would come to their, your door. There's a front page news section, then there's an op-ed section, then there's a style section, then there's an arts and culture section, then there's a sports section, then there's a business section. But in all of these, they're talking about somebody else. This person did this, this person did that, this person did this. The question came up, who am I? What am I? What do, what do I add up? Mm -hmm. Am I ever going to, quote, unquote, be anything? What is my role in this world? So all my writing or the origins of the writing or wanting to do it was to try to figure out those things. Mm. What the heck does it mean? Is my only role in life? So the titled story, Notes of a Mediocre Man, in this book addresses head-on those questions. It were your questions, right? The questions meaning, yes, my questions of what it means to live in a culture of success. Mm. So the opening lines of Notes of a Mediocre Man are, I am a product of my age, mean, jealous, vindictive. I hate my neighbors. I hate their successes. I hate justices of the Supreme Court. I find them dull. I hate schools of government. I find them silly. I hate law schools. I find them limited. I hate Aristotle. He would, if living, be a professor of law, at least on a part-time basis. Mm -hmm. I hate the black and women's movements. I find them aggressive. I hate movements in general. I find them vulgar. I hate the New York Times and the Washington Post. I find them smug. I hate people who ride bicycles and go to museums. I find them phony. And in case anyone is wondering, I'm not reading from anything. This is all in my head. <laughs> so the point is, what does it mean to be an outsider? Mm -hmm. So the whole book, Notes of a Mediocre Man, is about small people on the margins who are outsiders and what does it mean to be, live in this modern world where you're always an outsider? So to go back to the idea of the journey, the whole idea of wanting to do this was not because I ever grew up as a child in India saying I want to write. The idea never entered my mind. It was finding myself in America in this culture of success and saying what the heck does it mean? What is this world that I'm living in and who am I, if anything, to what do I add up, mm -hmm. if anything? Mm -hmm. So all my writing is addressing that, and I'll just make quickly one quick point, that what I've discovered over the years again and again is when I'm writing the Indian stories, even though India is far, far away in my past, the sense of community, the sense of a little bit of kindness, a sense of a little bit of benevolence always crops up. If there's irony, it's always gentle irony. If there's mocking, there's always gentle mocking. Mm -hmm. But in the American story, something a little different may sometimes show up, like anger or just a sense of complete loss, or rage, or just, uh, well, I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the writing was really your your quest to 
figure out who you are. But at the same time, I, I feel that you also kind of pursued something you're really passionate about. Because before, your other careers and other jobs were just, like you said, practical means of income. Well, how, how did you discover that you enjoyed writing? Writing, I think the one book I would say that I maybe began it all was Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Mm -hmm. And the reason is very simple, that for many, many years in the U.S., I'd read all kinds of other writers in school, like Charles Dickens or the Romantic Poets or the French writers like Moliere or so on or Henry James or this or that person or the American writers like Twain, Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne and so on. But I always felt, even though I admired these people, I always felt I was reading about others and their lives. Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, maybe because it's about Russia and it's half East, half West, was the first, story, first book I read in which I felt I was reading about myself. Hmm. There's a scene in which Raskolnikov, who's the hero of Crime and Punishment, or the one who commits the murder, a hero may be the wrong word, the main character, he he kisses, he falls down on the ground and he kisses the earth. That's a very Indian kind of gesture. And the relationship between Raskolnikov and his mother and his sister, uh, the, the Raskolnikov's father has died and his mother and sister, and they're looking for a husband for his sister. But the interactions between them were very Indian. And I loved that sense. And finally, I loved that there was no pretension in Dostoevsky's writing. And later on, I've seen that in Tolstoy and Chekhov. I love that sense of intellectual honesty, just no sense of pretension, no sense of this is my metaphor, see, this is my simile, can anyone write like that? No one else can. There's none of that. There's just an honest sense of what is this world about? I want to write it. What does it mean? What does God mean? What does this world mean? What do I mean? And in those sense, I've... Those were the first three writers, especially Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and to a lesser extent Chekhov, that to me weren't just talking about uh, small things. They were talking about big things, but very honestly, and they also reminded me a lot of India. So those, would you say those, reading those influenced you and at the same time motivated you to start I think writing? I, I wanted to write anyway, to, in a sense, to to explain put down on paper, at least for myself, what I was feeling, what I was going through. Yep. And I love the honesty of these people and how they wrote as my models. And so one of the adjectives sometimes used to describe my writing, good or bad, is it's quote-unquote plain. But I like that. I like that adjective, that there is an absence of metaphors, there's an absence of similes. A good story is a good story. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be boring. It should never bore the reader but it doesn't have to show off. You know, I have to admit, this was the first story that I read in completion of your book, which I've had in a long time. But I really, and I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here, but I really enjoy your writing. And I'm going to just read one paragraph from the story that we talked about called The Bill to ex that exemplifies what you're saying with the plain writing. And it's very much resonates with me because when I write, I'm, I'm very simple and I write all my episodes out and then I read them. But I relate to this simple language um, that is not boring. It's just plain and relatable. It was a blue gate, quite low to the ground. A young, healthy man could easily have stepped over it. But who would dare? And besides, Mr. Takur was hardly a young man. 
He was an old man, well past his prime. He was much closer to his death than to his birth, much closer to his death than to his wedding date, much closer to death. But why persist with these thoughts? He was an old man, quite old. The point is made. <laughs> I love it. I, I just, I really like it. And it reminded me a lot of you. You, um, you may have said this phrase before. The point is made. I think it just reminded me. I also like this other phrase here that I highlighted. History tells us about the past. It tells us nothing about the present. I like that. I really like that. Even though we, we live so much in the past, we, you know, we. I think we draw we draw a lot from history. Actually, I think what, that might in that story, if I remember correctly, that might be being said ironic, ironically, because it's put mm -hmm. in the mouth of the uh, yep. bureaucratic employee, who is saying, you know, you listen to me, not I to you. You're here for. Oh yeah, you, you it know, was used you know. as a as an argument, uh, you know, yeah. to um, yeah, for the um, the person he was seeing that yeah. was presenting past bills, and he was basically nullifying his statement. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, Oh, there was so much in what you said that I wanted to um, pick up on. Back to your the journey. You made this jump from professional life into full-time writing. What triggered that decision? I mean, actually, I since I'm a practical person and do practical things, I actually had a full scholarship to law school, but I decided not to take it. And that's one of my maybe... Bibin, that doesn't sound very practical. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's one of my regrets. I think law school is a pro is a very practical thing, and if I had worked as a lawyer for as many years I worked in the corporate world, I would have had I would have a lot more money and would have had fewer financial issues to deal with. I, but the corporate world, I think. Uh, so I was working for a consulting firm for many years, and then I there was a senior vice president who really liked me, and I asked him if I could work part time. And his words were, "Bip, and you've done a lot for us. We'd like to do something for you." which was very nice. Mm -hmm. But I think his expectation was it might be for a year or two years. But this working part-time just went on and on, mm -hmm. which was nice for me. But it was never easy because it was a consulting company uh, which has an enormous amount of deadlines, enormous amount of pressures. And there were a lot of other vice presidents and senior vice presidents who made often my life very difficult for me because I might be working three days a week or even less and they would say, where is Bippin? We have a deadline. We need him here. We need him to come in. Yep. And it was always a question of balancing. And uh, on a couple of occasions, I was even laid off. But then we worked it out. I went, went back because my time was critical to me that I need to write. This is not a game. I can't just be doing this in the silly coffee shop kind of way. I have to get deep inside and uh, do it. It's a serious thing you have to do very seriously. So you felt the need. You felt that need. You needed to write, and so you were protecting your time. Absolutely. To, to and I, I mean, I would have died. I, this is not. A, this is not hyper, hyper, being hyperbolic. I would have died inside if I couldn't write. It, it right. was something I had to do. Mm -hmm. But and I stayed in the corporate world because I was in a very rare situation that though working part time, I had full benefits, which in those days people absolutely did not have. Now things have changed a bit a few decades later where people have flex time or work from home. Mm -hmm. But I remember even 
a magazine interviewed me. They sent a letter to the CEO saying, do you have any part-time employees? And from the CEO to the senior vice president down to me, Bipin, could you talk to this person? Because I was a freak, at least in those days, working part-time in a demanding, demanding consulting environment. So in this environment of all those deadlines and all those things, somehow when the very difficult time came, I just took a deep breath and went up with them for a couple of weeks or three weeks, but they always, for the most part, seemed to go away. And then I would have my time back again. Again, it wouldn't be hyperbolic to say in some ways I went through hell a lot of times in that in the corporate life trying to balance the two. And there were a lot of people who were jealous that I was working part-time, even more that I was working part-time and getting full benefits. So my life was made very difficult, but I survived for a couple of decades being oh, wow. able to do that. Yeah. Or not, not me, almost a couple of decades. Yeah, I think so. Then, yeah. Wow. And the income that you made was now half, but it was enough to For sustain 60%. You. It was enough. And I'm a, being an Indian, I'm a very frugal person. So <laughs> <laughs> frugal and practical. So you manage, you go along. So that, but then at, at some point you made the jump full time or was it the decision made by the company that they said we're done or? Oh, no, I think I now I, I mean, then we, I moved to California and California. I did work for a few jobs uh, full time because the option was gone to work part time. And now I guess I have enough money to just write full time. What brought you to California? My my family, my brother and his family are here. My mother, who was getting older, staying with my brother, was here. Yeah. So I came here. Uh, that sense of loss again, being uh, being isolated in on the East Coast, away from family, the little family I had left. So I came here to be with my family. So going back to the sense of loss and isolation, what, maybe even if just little things, did you do to kind of help you? Or did what things helped you with that, other than spending time with your brother and your mother and then maybe the writing? But were there other outside things you did where you found a little bit of sense of community? Or was there nothing? I think the... Interestingly, the one place in my life in America that I felt most comfortable is nursing homes. So when I was in the East Coast, I volunteered for a nursing home for 13 years. And I loved that place. It was just a few couple of blocks from my home, and I went 10 hours a week, and I would talk to people. And most importantly, I would once a week uh, lead a discussion of the news. And it wasn't just me looking at a paper and reading it was having a 50-60 minute discussion of the news and there were some people who could barely manage a sentence. But in nursing homes, you often have people going through for a few months or even long-term people who are fully lucid and intelligent. And I think that was a wonderful intellectual outlet for them. And for me, I love the nursing home because it was human beings around me, people. And I love being around old people as I do children. And one of the reasons is all people remind you immediately of the cycle of life, that things come, go. They may be in diapers, they may be weak in some ways, but that's the way the world is. At its core, maybe it also took me, it took me away from the world of ideas to the world of people, of human beings again, that these are fragile people who need help. And my simple goal in life is to give them the little bit of help that I can. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Mm -hmm. And then in the U.S. in the last few years, when my mother was in a nursing home, 
my brother went for half a day, I went for half a day, and it was the same kind of thing. I've never felt at home in America other than the, the, when I was in the nursing home on the East Coast as a volunteer or taking care of my mother uh, here. Mm-hmm. Again, people would say, oh, old people in nursing home, the smells, this, that. For, but for me, it was none of that. It was just human beings who are fragile. All you, they want you to do is to sit with them, talk, to hold their hand, to take their hand and raise it to their cheek, or to let them take your hand and raise it to their cheek. It's remarkably simple. It's remarkably simple. And I think those times and the times being with ch- little children for in some ways the same kind of thing. The children, the innocence, just the laughter, the giggling, the, the, the two ends on the scale. Mm-hmm. And in between, maybe as adults, we become competitive and this and that, and then we get to the notes of a mediocre man kind of world of competition and who am I and to what do I add up. But at the beginnings, the child and the end person, the old person in the diaper is the same kind of... Uh, inevitability to it but a pl- but an honesty to it that this is just the way the world is and it beca- it becomes almost self-evident that if i see a child my goal my purpose in life is to take that child and hold it to my chest and kiss it or to laugh with it and if i see an old person in in a way it's, it's essentially to do the same thing mm-hmm. and all the and i think dostoevsky told story would agree with that point they really would there's their view of the world ultimately the compassion, the wholeness, who we are, where we belong, would I think be very comparable. I think they would they would like that sentence about the, the, the child on the one and the old people on the other side. And that's when the world to me makes most sense. So to your question about uh, other than the writing, I think that has made me feel whole, W-H-O-L-E, has given me a center. Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine also writing now full-time is a very lonely activity. I mean, I, I, this weekend I was been mostly inside writing and I get anxious after a certain time. I, I get up, I, I feel like I need to run to a store, even though I don't really need anything, but it's like this craving just to be among people. How do you, on a day-to-day basis, deal with that loneliness? I think it's, it's in some ways, what you speak about is absolutely the way it is. It is a very lonely profession. You have to be strong inside. You have to be resilient. And I always try to go for a couple of walks of an hour each mm-hmm. to get fresh air and to see people outside. Um and more than just the loneliness, if you're in writing as a professional, you have to be very, very tough inside because you're going to get hundreds and thousands of rejections yeah. again and again and again and again and again and again. And as you're doing it, there's no guarantee that you will one day be, quote unquote, a su- success in quotation marks or anything like that. You're just you're doing it because you believe it's the right thing to do. You're doing it because you believe it's something worthy. I guess some people do it for other things. I mean, some people want to be big successes and celebrities, but maybe for others, maybe for people like me. Uh, it's conviction, I think, is the word. It's a compulsion, and it's a convic- it's something you cannot, as I think they used to say in the 
Bible, the old biblical prophets. It's something I cannot but, meaning I have to do it. Right. And so I think it's some of that. Yeah, you answered some of my question because I was going to ask you about challenges, and I'm sure that's one, the the rejection, dealing with rejection, and um, the loneliness, and you said you had your walks. Are there any other rituals, things you do? How is your day structured? I mean, I'm sure you're very organized to to keep yourself to to writing. What's What's your process? I think it's not very complicated i just get up and i begin writing or i have two you know i have 170 maybe completed stories i have another 70 that are uh, in draft form i have 10 file cabinets four drawers each i have 30 boxes of backup notes so there's always something i can pick up to review again to go over and sometimes there's a nice feeling I come across things that I've written 20 years ago that I thought were not so good, and I say, this is really very nice. Uh, but because I have them filed away in organized ways, I can every so often run into them. But in some ways, in other words, that's what I, I did. Other people may have other structures. Some people, you know, Hemingway used to say he used to go swimming and stuff and then come back and write for an hour and then go swimming again maybe or... But mine is essentially an all-day thing, and uh, everything revolves around it. And because I have so many unfinished things lying around, I can always pick up something. Do you have anything in the works right now to be published? Oh, I've, I mean, I have lots of things I send out to literary magazines all the time, and many get rejected, and often they, quite often they get accepted. Uh, and books, I have, as I said, 150 other stories finished. I, I think the couple of things, for what it's worth about this profession, they prefer novels to short collections of short stories, and I write mostly collections of short stories. So a few agents have contacted me on their own reading my work in some magazine, but they've always more or less said, we would prefer, you know, you have a follow-up novel mm -hmm. before we market you to the New York publishers. And how do you feel about a novel? Is it more is more work? Right? No, it's not more work. It just if any an idea comes to me, I would do it. But I, I feel that it, I I write at angles in oblique ways, and if I have 150 complete stories, I'm coming at anything that a novel would come at. But I'm coming at it from 150 different directions. So in 150 stories, I clearly have the equivalent of three, four novels, if not more. Mm -hmm. It's just that the practical reality, the marketing reality, is that that's what New York publishers want right and if, so this question I've asked you before do you have any plans to go back to India to maybe go visit I mean I don't know when the, was the last time you were there do you have you do you want to go back I mean I used to go every five six years now my parents have both passed away so I haven't been there in 20 years which is a very long time and uh, for the first time I wouldn't have any place to stay mm-hmm which in the past always I did. And the city where I come from is Delhi, but I feel very little connection to it. If I went to India, I would just want to go someplace different. Delhi in some ways is, has become too much like Washington, D.C. It's a capital city full of itself, full of self-absorption and power. And there's so much, so many other places in India that would be, I think, any place, other place in India. Mm-hmm a town, a rural place, another city would be much more appealing. Mm -hmm. But no immediate plans. 
no immediate plans no do you have any dreams anything you wish you want to do do you that you haven't done something you yeah something you dream about that you wish you can do one day I I think my if I had a wish it would be that my stories get a bigger audience. I really think they do deserve it. I think they're very special stories. The style is special. The way of looking is special. And they might or they might not. But that's if you talk about journeys and quests. Who knows how things unfold over time? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. So if these stories someday become read by a lot of people I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they get read by hardly anyone I wouldn't be surprised if it's somewhere in between I wouldn't be surprised things unfold I don't know who's sitting somewhere who may come across my stuff and pay attention to it so in terms of dream I wish they would get a bigger audience because I it I at least feel they they truly deserve it that yeah. there's a special way of looking there's a special way of seeing Yeah, I wish that too for you. I yeah. do. I, I, I. The one story I read, I truly enjoyed, and I. It left me thinking. It left me thinking with a lot of we. We didn't even get into all the different um, topics. I feel the sto- story touches, and like I said, very relatable. And um, and <laughs> I have a similar dream with my podcast. I'm. It's, it's the same way. I. We put a lot of work into it because we feel this conviction. You and I have this in common, and um, and we put it the content out there. And now we're just dreaming and hoping that one day somebody, hopefully not just one, but many people, will find it and uh, find it useful. But I think we just, in the meantime, have to continue doing what we feel strongly about doing. So. I have this question based on the story that I read. Is there, and and from knowing you, you, you sound very serious, but you have a very good sense of humor. Is there a humor in the stories? Is it maybe a little bit of hidden, maybe a little bit of dark side of humor that Is there that I just have to find? Is there oh, humor? I don't. I wouldn't say it's even hidden. This is the one story I love to read aloud because I think it's hilarious. The interactions are hilarious, and in fact, when the book came out and it's, uh, the publisher, I couldn't go because I was taking care of my ill mother. But for the opening of the book, they wanted me to send them a video, so I sent a video of me reading this story, and. Uh, I just loved reading it, and I remember mm-hmm. the person who was f- photographing me. He he had to c- cover his mouth with his hand. <laughs> he was a professional photographer. I mean, a video- videographer. Videographer. Mm-hmm. But I think it's I think it's a delightful story. I love reading it out loud. I I don't know. I wasn't sure because I also felt a little bit of sense of anxiousness and and helplessness. This man trying to get this one simple issue resolved of an overstated bill and he couldn't find traction. And so I wasn't, yes, the the comments are, are funny, but the quest that he was on was, I felt, I felt for him. It was kind of sad. He couldn't really find anyone to listen to, but yeah, of course I, I thought it was, uh, there was some humor in it. I just wanted to Do you have that in all of your stories? You incorporate a little bit of humor into it. In some stories, I think uh, 
I think Notes of a Mediocre Man, the title story itself of this, the one, the one that I quoted from I'm a Product of My Age, mean, as, you, as it continues, as it unfolds, it's very self-mocking, and mm-hmm. it has that in-your-face kind of humor. And for what it's worth, it's the, the title, Notes of a Mediocre Man, and the title story is coming from Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. And a lot mm-hmm. of people don't see the humor in Notes from Underground, but there's a, there's a, there's a taunting and there's a humor and there's a self-mocking. And Dostoevsky has a wonderful sense of humor, which even someone like Nabokov, who disliked him enormously, the other Russian writer, complimented him for his humor, that he's very capable of it. And I think, so in the title story, Notes of a Mediocre Man, it's a taunting kind of in-your-face, you want to have a fight, let's have a fight kind of humor. Mm-hmm. It's your world of success, I'm nobody. And he's mocking the world, but in a sense, he's undercutting himself all the time. The narrator of that is. In the bill, I think it's a gentler humor, or it's it, it's just laugh-out-loud kind of humor to me in the bill. Mm-hmm. The, the, pain, the interaction between the person on the other sense of the counter that he's come to appeal his case to, and the clerk on the other side of the counter, and the person, Mr. Thakur, who's gone to appeal his bill. I didn't ever say why I picked that story, but I picked it because you join the quest for you monthly dinners that we have and you are always the one not picking up the bill but calculating and breaking out the bill with your excellent math skills and that's why I picked this story because I thought it's a relationship uh I just it caught my attention the bill um and yeah you have this these excellent math skills I want to go back to this um early in the beginning when you said the career that you picked, was that was that because your family pushed you in that, in that direction of pick something reasonable or was that just understood? That's part of the culture that is part of, you don't even question it. You pursue a profitable career. I think my parents were wonderful in that sense. They never put any pressure one way or the other of any kind. They never said a word, you should go into this or go into that. But I think just growing up in a very marginal, middle-class family, you just get that sense that you have to support yourself. So mm-hmm. when I was in last year of high school and through college, I was working 20, 25 hours a week part-time in addition to going to college, or even 28 hours a week part-time. So accounting, finance, economics, those kind of practical things were just a given. And most other Indians at the time went into engineering the different kinds of engineering, mechanical, civil, electrical. So I don't remember a single Indian person from that time who studied something like art history or literature or philosophy or anything like that. It was just, it was that those things would be a luxury or to even have a luxury, meaning you could get an undergraduate degree and then maybe as a later you could get a, you know, as a professional degree like law or medicine or something. You didn't have the luxury of going through the steps and of going through six, seven years of college together. You had to support yourself while you were going to college. You had to support yourself after it. Uh, it's interesting because you commented on the success culture of the United States. But in a sense, that's, you know, Indian children are pushed into the same kind of direction by pursuing careers that are profitable to push themselves out of poverty. Isn't that kind of a little bit, it's, it 
similar, right? Is it? Do you think it's going to go into the same direction that India eventually is heading to where the United States is heading? Or where Not the only, States I is? mean, I think one could even argue that India, ironically, in some ways, is the most materialistic country in the world for all the talk about Indian gurus and gods and spirituality, and that is there. But there's an obsession with money Who went to in India, who went to which school, whose family is what, you know, is he secure, what kind of house does he have, is he marriageable material, all those kinds of things. In some ways, Indian culture shares that very much with the Jewish culture, you know, emphasis on family, which is there in the Jewish culture, and then who's success and who is in a success, and what is he up to? If you get together, you almost like compare notes, you compare resumes. How much money have you made, and what new car did you get, and what new house did you get, and if you sold it, how much profit did you make? Yeah. So India, in that sense, is extremely materialistic, and I think it's a myth that it isn't. But I think the other point, that's, if to go back to a little bit of what we began with, that even in spite of the enormous materialism of India, it still remains, there's so many poor people still, a hundred, few hundred million poor people in a, in a population of 1.2 billion who still need help. So you're always reminded of the human element. You don't get the luxury you have in some ways in the U.S. to be so self-centered. Oh, my life is miserable. I'm alone. I'm not married. I'm not this. I don't have a good house. Those people are be better off than I am. You don't begin and end the day talk, thinking about yourself. Yeah. I think in India, there's still... and sti I mean, those eyes are everywhere. The eyes of people with affection and the lost souls with stories behind them are everywhere. They're in the U.S. also. Absolutely they are. They're everywhere. It's, it would be terribly dishonest and and unfair to say that they're not. I just think in India, in terms of the numbers, there's so many around them on the streets and everything that you're always put in perspective. Even in this materialistic society of comparing and being pushed in the direction of success, there are others who never even had a chance who are surrounding you, and your mind goes to them, and what is my responsibility to them? What can I do for them? Where does that come from? This is that because you are raised in a broader community that you are raised with the sense I'm always looking out for others around me. It's never just about me. Is that where this communal thinking comes from? Actually, I mean, one could even argue the opposite way that Americans do a lot more volunteer work and everything than Indians ever do. Indians are beginning to do it. I think all I was perhaps trying to say is that in India, it's not that there's a sense that anyone teaches you have to pay attention to others. In fact, maybe no one teaches you that. But if you're a halfway honest and good person, you'll feel it yourself. Why am I selfish if all I think about is myself while there are these people who you know, are sleeping on the streets or who have so little to eat? Mm -hmm. So maybe that was me in India, I don't know. But I think it's easier in India not to be so self... If you're an honest person, it's easier in India not to be so self-absorbed. Yeah begin and end the day saying the world begins and ends with me and now what do I do? I find that very that thought that you mentioned I find that very interesting this waking up and you know here we're so consumed with ourselves you know we, we keep we talk gratitude is the new thing of the day we talk a lot about gratitude we have to remind ourselves what we're grateful for and all these practices and it's all about us right and and you i really like that this thinking of of somebody else enjoy that all right 
Well, thank you, Pippin. I really appreciate your time. I, I feel very fortunate to know you, to call you my friend. I think, despite the differences between us, I think there's a lot of commonalities. We're both, I call it, on a quest. You with your writing and, and your stories and me with my podcast. But we both have a message to share with the world. And, and uh, yeah, I appreciate you talking about it with, with me. It was, I enjoyed this very much to get to know you even a little better. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for all your questions. And most of all, thank you for even asking me to be here to begin with. Of course. Thank you. All right. <laughs>